get the money out of the center of the conversation and put the people in the middle. And then when someone really understands and loves what you're doing, they will activate against that because it's our nature to do so. Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, the podcast about philanthropy and contributing to missions that are of note and worthwhile. I have an awesome guest with me today that will impress anyone in the space of fundraising. She's raised funds anywhere from $100,000 up into multi-million dollars. And I want to talk to her about that today. And I want you all to hear all about the decoding and deconstructing major gifts fundraising for small organizations as well as large. She's been in the industry of fundraising for over 26 years with a range of experience nationally and regionally working on major gifts. So allow me to introduce you, my dear friend and associate, former client, former colleague, Sharon Bird. Welcome. Hello. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. It's good to see your face. Thanks. Good to see your face too. (laughs) I'm thrilled to have you on. Today, like I said, I really want to focus on major gifts and how does a nonprofit maximize their current donors in order to secure more major gifts? And major gifts can mean a lot of different things to different organizations, depending on the size. Start us off by just giving us a framework for how do you think of major gifts? So I would say that one of the most old-fashioned exercises on the planet is actually major gift fundraising. And what I mean by that is the, the way that people relate to one another and to organizations that they'd like to support is really all relational. And it's about people helping people. So I would begin by saying whether you're a small community-based organization in Silicon Valley or you're a national legacy foundation that's doing work across the country, the extent to which you relate to your donors and you engage them in the work that you're doing and the storytelling about that work is the key to major gift fundraising, whether your major gift threshold is $1,000 a year or a million dollars a year. It's all about how you're connecting the donors to your work. Yeah, I love that. So what's the first step in looking at your donor database and segmenting and identifying where are our major donors? So, you know, the expression that's often used is play to your potential. And so I would offer that while oftentimes people will look at their donor file and they will go back to the same, I'll give you a real life example. I have an organization that I've worked with where 13 people have been contributing 51% of the money for the last five years. And while that sounds wonderful because those 13 people are extraordinarily generous and clearly they're giving unbelievable major gifts, what's really scary about that fact is the fact that all of the eggs are in very very few baskets at at the risk of borrowing an, an Easter pun, as it were. But the point there is to be knowledgeable about your donor file and know who is in your mix and who is in your universe giving and supporting your work and really being thoughtful about how you're engaging with those people and you're engaging with them in the way they want to be engaged with is really the key to taking those 13 people and turning it into 26, 50, 75, and so on. And it's really just about communication and storytelling. And so 
I often recommend that development officers really get knowledgeable about who that who is giving to them. And I think the first key to that is reaching out to those donors and asking them why. And and it's about listening more than it is about pitching. It's about asking that donor, wow, Mr. Jones, why have you been giving us five, six, or seven hundred dollars for the last five or six years? What's your mission connection to the work that we're doing? And please tell me that story. And what I often say when I'm doing major gift fundraising trainings is by virtue of just asking that question why, the donor will tell you how they want to be engaged and how they want to be asked. So gone, you know, the myth of creating donor strategies in the back room like Oz and deciding how this ask is going to go is just, it's myth. It's absolutely nonsense. I mean, the way to do it is to ask your donors why they're giving to you and let them tell you why and let them tell you how they want to be asked. So that's how, that's how I often explain it. Well, thank you for modeling that language. And throughout the rest of this conversation, I'd encourage you to do that because you're one of the most articulate people that I know and so skilled at major gift fundraising. You're so nice. Well, it, you know, it's really a power of yours, a strength of yours is communication. And I think that's really important for fundraisers to hear different phrases of how to engage major gift donors. So I appreciate you modeling that. And Tell me about what are you seeing right now for major gift engagement? How long does it typically take to win that big whale, whether it's a $25,000 gift or a $5 million gift? Well, I wish I could tell you that there was a secret sauce or a formula to this, and but there, it's definitely not one size fits all. I think what I'm finding, at least particularly probably in the last two or three years, that gone are the days where you need to take three, four, and five visits to cut to the chase and ask the donor to participate and support the work. I think people are getting to that conversation much more quickly. And that that could be happening for a myriad of reasons. What I really liken it to is that actually in this day of information, it is really quite easy for a major donor to access information about your organization at the highest level, understand the work that you may or may not be doing in the community, and then activate against his or her perception. The work of the major gift fundraiser is to actually understand that 99, you know, perception is 99% of reality, I think is the expression, and then actually amplify that experientially in terms of whether it's storytelling or pulling the donor closer to that work so that you can really help them understand the impact that a large gift might have on that work. And so the extent to which you can pull the donor closer, that could take one visit, it could take three visits, or it could take, in some cases, you know, after, after recent experience, it could take one Zoom call or three Zoom calls. And then ultimately, you can actually activate a donor against a really important mission much more quickly. So I would say that it's really about understanding how your organization presents and how you're being received. And then engaging in that why conversation for that donor so that you can tailor it to that person. I love that. I love that you're demystifying some of the old adages. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, what people often forget is that, yes, there will always be haves and have-nots. And there are people that have more than me and more than you and people that have much less than me and have much less than you. But at the end of the day, everyone wants to be valued for who they are, not what they have. And the extent to which you can demystify the idea that a major donor puts his or her shoes on the exact same way in the morning that you do 
and really listen to them with a level of authenticity and care and compassion that they would expect from their family members or from anyone else that approaches them. You set both of you at ease in a way that enables real conversations to happen, which enables real resources to get moving. So get the money out of the center of the conversation and put the people in the middle. And then when someone really understands and loves what you're doing, they will activate against that because it's our nature to do so. Oh, beautiful. I love that. That is so good. So speaking of demystifying and sort of taking out the optics of major gift fundraising and going back to equalizing the playing field and creating a sense of human connection during the time when so many of us have, well, all of us have been kept at home, sheltering in place. Tell me about what you've done in the past or what you were doing to create some sort of equal playing field to connect with your donors virtually. Well, I would say that, uh, you know, it's been interesting because one of my most recent projects has been with an organization that's nearing its 70th birthday that's grown and changed exponentially, particularly in the last decade, just based on the need that they and the mission that they serve in the community. And often, like with any organization that's sort of in a growing spot, there were a lot of growing pains in terms of how we were telling our story. What did our website look like? What was our marketing doing? And how did we even understand who we were communicating with and with what frequency and what our open rate was, even on email? So the extent to which we really simplified, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it and why we're doing it the way we're doing it. And this is how you can engage. It was really those four things that really pulled that together. And so while every communication during the shelter in place was not necessarily an ask, every one of them had a call to action, whether it was personal like who, you know, have you told somebody, I'm going to make this up. Have you told somebody today, have you called somebody you haven't talked to in a while and asked them how they're doing? Or, you know, thoughtfully, you know, giving people different questions to, to use in conversation in terms of what is this, what is this meant to you and how has it changed your family dynamic or how you spend time? It, it was about letting people be themselves. And again, it just comes back to letting people be really human and enables them to engage in a way that I think was thrust upon us through the shelter in place. And maybe my great white hope is that it sticks with us, you know, well beyond this so that we can cut out the noise and cut out the the marketing and the buzzword jargon business and really just talk about the work that's getting done, why that work is important. And perhaps in some cases in this sector, more important than ever, as in terms of uh, some of the safety nets and the social justice issues that have presented themselves through this. And let people, you know, figure out and make it easy for them to plug in and support. So I think, I mean, I don't know if that that answers your question, but that's how we've been doing is really simplifying and distilling the what we're doing, the why we're doing it, and the how we're doing it. Yes. And then what about the case for support? Is that still relevant? Are you sending it electronically? Are you throwing those out and having more conversations? What do you do that's communicating the... I hate to say, I think that I do think it's relevant. I actually think it's a very interesting intellectual exercise for organizations to pause for a moment and ask themselves, like I just said, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And what impact is it having? I think one of the great gifts of global reset is the ability to lose some of the noise. 
whether it's in the business sector or, and, and I don't mean that in a way where to be disparaging of, of unnecessary or non-essential businesses, because I, I don't mean to make light of employment situations. But what I'm saying is in the nonprofit sector, for example, there are a lot of nonprofit organizations, many of which are doing very similar work that could arguably be quite complementary. And the economies of scale and the ability to reset and take a look right now and have these organizations focus on the one, maybe two things that they do really well, and then therefore encourage those organizations to work together and create economies is actually pretty effective. And I will say, relative to major giving, what I'm seeing more often than not is that funders are encouraging that behavior. So in order to activate those major gift dollars, be it from individual major gift philanthropists or from large institutional foundations, they are encouraging organizations to work in collaboration with one another and really define those economies. And as a result of doing that, they're making much bigger gifts. It goes back to the expression that they would use at Harvard Business School for what that's worth is systems, you know, systems approaches to social justice issues. And there's nothing like a reset that we've just been through in order to push people in that direction. So I'm seeing that with funders left and right right now in terms of, well, why do you do that better than this organization over here? And would you be willing to talk to this organization and work with them on that? So those have been awesome strategies for folks who have already been in your network. And as you and I know, well, sometimes donors, it will take them a couple of weeks, sometimes 10 years to get them into major gift right. school, right? <laughs> sometimes it's an early gift that grows over time, or sometimes it's that big whopper right away that's pretty rare. We all sort of hope for. What about brand new donors that are major gift donors? So you've identified a prospect. He or she is in that golden triangle, right? They're in the connection of there's access to that person, they have ability to give, and they have a natural affinity for your case or your cause. Then what is the strategy that you've seen work over time, as well as during the times of the you know, shelter in place or the crisis to engage new prospective major gift donors? So I would say, first of all, you need to know who you're talking to and you have to be you know, reasonably certain that the capacity that you perceive is actually real before you engage somebody in that conversation. I often used to joke that one of my favorite campaigns that I ever worked on was they used to give me the really the nice neighborhoods and I would pull up to a house and I would go in and visit with a donor and there'd be no furniture in a mansion. And that's actually true. And so I think what's important is perception is not always 99% of reality. So to go back to my earlier comments, you have to be really careful about those that appear to be really have tremendous capacity, sometimes may not, and particularly coming out of what we've just been through, that could be even more true. But I would offer that you know, in dealing with new donors, it still comes back to asking questions and being a good listener and really understanding that donor's why of why they may be interested and really being confident enough in the work that you and your organization are doing to ask those questions and to be okay if the answer is, I'm just not interested and then move on. I think one of the other big errors I see a lot of fundraisers do is they hang on to the same list over and over again. And they keep thinking that if you know someone has said no or someone is not interested, they keep just leaving the person on the list and going there. You know what? There are infinite 
amounts of resources and people in this world that are interested in engaging in engaging in all sorts of opportunities, keep going and keep moving through that list is, is the way I see it. So, and in terms of tactics with individual, you know, newer donors, the extent to which, you know, you can connect them again to the why and the why they should care and the level of impact that a gift that he or she might be able to make to your organization is your key to continuing that conversation and moving the ball down the field. And it's having the sense of self and, and purpose to know when to stop. <laughs> I would also say that that's probably just as important as keeping on, keeping on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a takeaway for you. <laughs> awesome self-respect to know when. <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, like, it's like when someone wants to date you, like, stop asking me out if I said no three times. Enough already. <laughs> yeah, we've we've talked a lot about how major gift fundraising is like dating, right? So right. You really, you got to meet the person in the first place. You got to see, hey, is this a good fit? Do we like each other? And then go in down the process of courting. Are you really going to ask somebody to marry you on the first date? The answer is no. No. So you don't ask people to marry you on the first date. No. And would you ever ask? You don't ask anybody. And how strange would you think it was if someone asked you? So it's that that principle in fairness really does apply. It does. It totally does. So there's got to be some kismet, right? So there's also like, there's an art and science to fundraising. And as you're saying, you know, the fundraiser's got to have some self-awareness and authenticity to feel if this is working or not. What do you do to pivot if it's just not working? And you say, I know there's something there, but this person is just not digging me. Who do you send them to? So I, I think on the, you know, one of the, again, another fallacy of this business is the egomaniacal and self-centered major gift fundraiser never makes it for the long haul. Let's face it. The bottom line in this business is you get rejected for a living. So you have, you've got to like be able to put yourself out there, tell the story of the organization and let the universe work. And, and then, and if it's because you can tell just like when you meet a new friend or someone else, if you don't have that kind of energy with someone, be it intellectual or otherwise, I mean, you have to know when to move on. I am never afraid of self-selecting out of a visit or of coaching up my chair or my CEO or another member of the board to be able to do it. And I don't need to be in that room. Our job as major gift fundraisers is a privilege on some level to be brokers of those kinds of conversations and to put people who can in the company of people who do. And so, so you don't have to be in the room to make that magic happen. But if you've prepared both sides of the equation and it's kind of like sending your child off to school for the first time, you just sort of let that go and then you keep working with that. I love that. I sort of, I think of fundraisers as facilitators or brokers, as you're saying, and that it really is a magical opportunity where you're setting everybody up for success. And then you might be bowing out at some point, or, or maybe you're stepping in after some of the initial magic has happened, but you come in to close. So yeah, we used to also joke about put a volunteer in between a problem or a solicitation. How much do you use your board members or volunteers when you're engaging donors? I would say, you know, it really just depends. I like to do it a lot. And I would suggest, and I would offer that best practice is to always have a volunteer in the mix. And, you know, the old adage is that staff-driven major gift fundraising is never as successful as it is when it's 
when you have a volunteer involved or you have a peer-to-peer situation going on. So I would say rule of thumb, always put volunteers in the mix. The other thing I would say back to something else you said that it, that just reminded me of an old expression is that the whole point of a major gift fundraiser is that when you arrive, they, this is an expression you've probably heard. When you arrive, they think they can't do it without you. Somewhere in the middle, they realize that they've got this. And when it's all over and they're over goal, they don't remember you. And they really think that they could have done it without you. That's the mark of a really good fundraiser is because, you know, you, if I go back and look at all the campaigns I've done over the course of my 26 years, do you know, I'm sure half, more than half of them don't even remember who their campaign director was. And that's the point. Because the point of this work isn't about the major gift fundraiser in the middle. It's about the, the work and the mission in the middle. Right. And you're aligning the people, as you say, that do with the people who can, but they have a shared mission. They want to move the needle. No question. Yeah, they're busy working or they're doing something in the corporate world to make them all the money. And then you're doing the work in the nonprofit world to take care of the community. And it's really a relationship. Yeah, it's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I love that. And the donor gets something out of that in terms of the donor's bucket is filled as a function of feeling that impact. And I mean, and that's the whole thing. It's about connecting people and then ultimately the resources move. And so if you can, you know, there's a great book, which I'm sure you've read called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. And Lynn was, I was lucky enough to have Lynn as one of my professors in the program I did a couple of years ago. And the best advice she gives is to take the money out of the middle. And if you take the money out of the conversation, the rest takes care of itself. It takes the pressure off the fundraiser and it takes the pressure off the donor. Awesome. I love that advice. I love that. So what about stewardship? So you've got the donor to the table. You asked him or her to marry you and give the gift and then they did. And then what I see with nonprofits and a lot of the folks I work with is that they have the best intentions, but they're always spread thin. And they have a hard time keeping up with stewardship. There might not be a stewardship plan. There might not be reminders. How important is stewardship? We know it's important, but like, what are some of the best ways of stewarding a major gift donor in order to get them to continue to feel that same sense of connection and human dynamic and relationship that you've been focused on for so many months? So the way I think about this is it's pretty, pretty simple. It mostly comes down to thank you. So as, as you think about when someone does something nice for you personally, it doesn't ever occur to you not to say thank you. Or even particularly the, the best example I would give in this day and age of texting is, you know how we're always instantly like something happens and it reminds you of your, you know, your cousin Mary in New Jersey and you stop for a second. And you send Mary a text and you say, oh, I just walked past this thing and it reminded me of you, Mary, and I was just thinking of you. And so I wanted to say hello. That's stewardship. That's stewardship of, in my case, my cousin Mary is one of the most important relationships in my life. And if we think about our major donors as some of the most important relationships in the life lives of our organizations, if we before we get ourselves crazed about these stewardship grids and all the rest of it, they're important. And I'm not pretending, I mean, I mean, you know me enough well enough to know that I'm not a huge rule follower. So I believe in making sure that there's freedom within a framework. But if we just remember to keep saying thank you or, oh, Mr. Jones, you know, I was just walking past 
you know, the classroom and I saw five kids in there and they were all playing with their iPads. And I was remembering that actually you made that happen. That doesn't require a stewardship report. It doesn't require a whole lot of heavy lifting. It's, it's a human gesture. So I would say stewardship is really important. And I would say stewardship coming out of what we've just been through and into a really uncertain time is more important than ever. Just to explain that, hey, part of the reason we were able to, I'll give it a, make up an example. Part of the reason we were able to keep going through all of that was because of all of your past giving. Thank you. Yeah, I love that. Really simple. So I just, if you think about how, what jogs your memory when you walk past a picture in your house and why you text your mom or your dad or your best friend, the same principle, it's the same kind of relationship management that we need to take. It's just human. That's so good. Yes, it is so human. And it takes five minutes and it'll actually make your experience as a fundraiser a lot more delightful as well. That's exactly right. Because you feel a connection. Well, well, and people, I mean, I, I think that the, the caveat I would say is that turnover in our industry is so high that the ability for people to be able to do that in a genuine and authentic way where they've been somewhere to see the trajectory of a donor's relation to an organization may be negligible. So we ha- one would have to be careful about that being really genuine and authentic, but it can still be done. And I would say that every CEO and executive director that I've worked with and coached that's that's pro- some of my first advice to them when they say, okay, we got to do a campaign, Staren. How are we going to do this? And I said, well, how often do you just call people just because? Because it, you know, you can go through every feasibility study on the planet, and or you can just stay in relation to the people that support you, and that's how you get your file campaign ready. Yes, I love it. I love it. It's just so grounded. It's just down to earth. It's just basic, right? <laughs> well, and I just, it's its not, I often say whenever I take on a project, listen, I'm not Harry Potter. I don't come with a cape or a magic wand. What I come with- Or a is, book of names either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I come with experience of having done this and perhaps I'm, I'm lucky in that regard in terms of a level of confidence now of knowing that I don't have to put on all these airs and all this other nonsense. Basically, my job is to is to connect people to the work that's being done, give them the best information that they can access about that work so that they can make the best decision for themselves. And ultimately, those resources will start moving in favor of whatever it is they're interested in. Okay, so Saren, I want to hear more of the language you use in particular. So walk me through a specific solicitation. And of course, you're going to abbreviate it so we don't have another hour, but what would be the phrase that you use leading up to the actual ask? And then how do you ask and what's next? So I'll give you a real one. Give me a real one. So the organization that I'm working with now works largely in mental health and in the education and learning difference space. And often learning differences are comorbid with mental health, anxiety, and depression, particularly in children. What we've all been through over the course of the last several weeks and months with COVID and shelter in place and all the rest of it has already likely had an enormous impact on learning, never mind homeschooling kids with learning differences, and on the mental health of not only the children who are trying to adapt to that, but the parents who are trying to manage to it. 
What we've done is taken a look at how our organization has been operating for more than almost 70 years. And then what does it look like now? And what it looks like now is that the work that we do is more relevant and more needed than perhaps it even was before this all happened. You know, the estimates, I think, in terms of the number of kids that needed access to mental health support prior to this episode was unmet need was close to a quarter of a million children in two counties in Silicon Valley alone. So what we've looked at is, you know, any life cycle of a, of a trauma in mental health is cyclical. It's two steps forward, two steps back. So what, we tried to look, what we've tried to look at is what's acute right now requires courage. The transition into our new normal is going to require connection and a sense of community. And the long run is going to require a lot of compassion because people are going to be afraid and people are not going to know how to do it. Do I send my kid to school? Do I not send my kid to school? So our framework of what we already offer is about courage, connection, and compassion. And with that, we know the need prior to this was, it was extraordinary. And we know the need coming out of this is only going to be exponentially greater and will present itself in ways as yet unknown. So with that, we are not slowing down. And what we would like you to consider is a gift of $5 million to make sure we are ready. And that yielded a $5 million gift on Zoom. Wow. I mean, bravo, first of all. (laughs) So I'm just saying that that's how that went. And to to work through what you've done, to decode that, what you did was you talked about the state that we were in, then the state we are in, and then what the future will look like. And even not really knowing what the future would be, but knowing it would be greater than it is now. Right. Knowing that we don't know what we don't know. We haven't seen the future yet, but we do know that we need to be prepared for it. So it's really a capacity gift that you're asking for. Correct. And it was unrestricted in terms of giving the organization flexibility to respond to as yet unknown need. Right. And what else I heard was you went back to your core why. It must have been the why that you've gone through those three C's. So it's repeating language that's very digestible and simple on the story and arc, adding a few numbers. And then another, if you had more time, you'd probably tell a story about you know, one of the kids who has benefited from the services. Exactly. And then, uh, you know, like anything with any solicitation, after you ask, you just need to shut your mouth and let the donor respond to that. Yes. And I mean, as we all know, there's only really four ways anybody can respond to you when you ask them for money. And then you, you handle them two ways. Yes, you say thank you. And the other three ways, you just give the donor more time to think about it. Right. I love it. So it's pretty straightforward and it never changes. If someone can ever come up for me, a fifth way that someone responds to a solicitation like that, I'll take it. (laughs) I I have yet to see another. I mean, it's either yes, no, they offer you lower amount or they ask for time. Yeah. It's pretty pretty straightforward. (laughs) All right. So that's a call to action. Anybody who's listening, who's heard another option, a fifth, then call Sarah or me. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. Because we'd love to know. <laughs> we want to know. Sarah, this has been awesome. I wish we had another hour with you. I'd love to have you on another time. I love what you are doing and how you present and you're such a motivational fundraiser. So I want to applaud your success of a recent $5 million gift. And I know you've got 15 more that you're anticipating, but you'll close by the time it's aired. One hopes. <laughs>
Well, and I would like to congratulate you on launching this. I think it's really timely. And I think a lot of people can stand to benefit from your wisdom and your knowledge, not to mention your good energy. So thank you for doing it. Ah, well, thanks. No, that's nice of you today, Sarah. All right. Well, I hope you have an awesome day and we'll be in touch. One more thing before we close. I want to give you an option to do a shout out to an organization or a human because this will be broadcasted. And who do you want to spread some love to? So I would like to give my shout out to an individual and an organization. So I would like to give my shout out to Catherine Harvey, who is a remarkable philanthropist in the Bay Area, and to all of her support for Children's Health Council in Silicon Valley, which is an organization that is on the front end of leading the recovery for mental health and learning for kids and families in the Bay Area. Love it. So... Catherine and CHC. Woohoo! All right. I love that we uh, shouted that out. How can people find you, Sarin? I'm easy to find. Sterenbird.com. So it's www.sterenbird.com. All my contact information and all my blog and all that good stuff is all on my website. So thanks. All right. It'll all be in the show notes. Thank you, Sarin. Have an awesome day. You're wonderful. You too. Thanks, Lens. Be good. Bye. Bye. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.